thank you, Professor Moore, and thank you to the Center for National Security Law. Um, it's always great to come back to UVA. One of the uh, jokes, as an Army JAG, and, and you all are aware that the Army JAG school is right next door, and so for Army JAGs, coming back to Charlottesville is like the Hodge to Mecca. We're coming back at least once a year, and so um, th this is good. I, I went through withdrawal when I first retired that first year, and it was like, don't I have to go back to the JAG school? You don't have to go back to the worldwide CLA. Um, but thank you very much. Thank you for Professor Turner. When I first reached out, um, on behalf of the American Bar Association Standing Committee for Law and National Security, um, we have a women's, Women in National Security Law Subcommittee. And one of the things that the subcommittee has been trying to do is to go throughout the National Capital Region holding panels like this to expose the next generation to the practice. Um, I was indeed privileged to have been exposed and trained by people that you're familiar with, Professor Moore, Professor Turner, Dave Graham, who was my mentor um, and grew me up as an operational law attorney in the Army. And so I feel very strongly that we have to grow the bench of the next generation, so I'm honored to be here. Um, the way we we're going to do the, the, the panel, um, Angie Chen, who's, who's bring, will bring up the rear, both Angie and I are on the um, ABA Standing Committee. And so when we were setting, the, setting up this panel, we thought, well, let's do something a little bit different. And instead of it just being merely a career panel, let's talk about something substantive. And, and what is more timely um, than cyber, cybersecurity? And so we, we came to the point of discussing the roles and responsibilities in cyber. And so the way this panel is structured is that I will start off and I will talk about DHS's Department of Homeland Security's role for the .gov. Now I'm going to give you a caveat, and I did this. I did a similar thing at GW um, Law School a couple of weeks ago. Two caveats: one, you know, the the opinions you hear today are those of, are mine and not necessarily reflective of the opinions of the Secretary of Homeland Security or the Department of Homeland Security. Have to say that, um, or the Speaker Bureau folks get mad. The second thing is, I am not a techie. I am so much not a techie that I had to bring a techie with me to discuss that. <laughs> And so what we're going to do is I will present the legal framework for DHS's roles and responsibilities in cyberspace. Then I'm going to hand it off to Merritt, who will discuss the, uh, how we operationalize that. Um, and then it will pass to Commander O'Connor from the National Security Agency, and she's going to talk about the military's role for the dot mill. And then Angie will bring us up strong. You know, she's the anchor position, and she will talk about um, the private sector and, the, and their role and how they interface with .mil and .gov. So that's how, that's how we're going to do that. And, and T.I. will give a brief introduction to each, each of the panelists okay. as we start uh, the next one. All right, thank you. Thank you, Professor Moore. So let's start at the beginning. Department of Homeland Security was created by the 2002 Homeland Security Act. The department was created in the wake of the September 11th attacks where the president and then ultimately Congress saw the need to pull together those entities in other executive departments that had some role in securing the homeland. So as I tell folks, Department of Homeland Security was created like from a Chinese menu. You take two from column A, and we'll take three from column B, and we'll take a couple more from state, and then we're going to build some stuff around it, and boom, Department of Homeland Security. 
And so as a result of that, and, and literally, we, there were components pulled out of Department of Justice. There were components pulled from Department of State. There were components pulled out of Treasury. We got the Coast Guard from Department of Transportation. We got TSA from Transportation. I mean, so you're talking about executive divisions within other executive departments that were all thrown together. And DHS is comprised of 22 components. And so you can tell the problem with that. But our foundational legislation is the Homeland Security Act in 2002. And within, within that act, the Department of Homeland Security was given some clear missions. Our primary mission is the counterterrorism one, protecting the homeland. But we also were given a mission with regards to critical infrastructure. Now, again, I gave you that history because often most of DHS's authorities are vested in other legislation. Because, like I said, we, we got the mission and then we, had, we got the, the bodies to do that mission, but from somebody else. And so actually the critical infrastructure piece was defined in the U.S. Patriot Act of 2001. And so we inherited that responsibility. Part of critical infrastructure, there are 16 elements of, that are identified within critical infrastructure, one of which is communications. So hence how DHS got the core responsibility with regards to having some role and responsibilities in the cyberspace. Congress then got active in, in 2014 and started to um, pass a series of bills that were ultimately signed into law that further defined and refined Department of Homeland Security's responsibilities. And so the National Cybersecurity Protection Act of 2014 um, codified what, what we call the NCIT, the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center, the NCIT. We are working diligently in DHS, and that's my, part of my role as uh, Assistant Secretary, to try to get legislation that not only authorizes pieces of the department that have never been authorized, but that change the name of some of these places. <laughs> we, we have the, the, the directorate within DHS that is responsible for our cyber mission. is called National Protections and Programs Directorate. That, that would let you know right away that they're responsible for critical infrastructure cyber, right? So we're like, we've got to get that thing renamed. Nobody knows who they are, nobody knows what they do, and they have this incredibly important mission that, that you know, no one can identify. And in working with the private sector in particular, they need to be able to look at a diagram, wire diagram and say, oh, I've got a cyber issue. These folks I need to call up. And, and Merritt will talk about that a little bit more, how that interface works. But, but the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center um, was authorized in 2014. And, and NCIC's primary responsibility is that the interface, they are the portal through which we interface with the private sector. They also have the responsibility with regards to the .gov when we're talking about monitoring systems and showing the vulnerabilities, what vulnerabilities exist, and then advising the .gov on how they are to fix that. But then that's as techie as I'm getting on that, and Mary can talk about the rest of it. Also, with it, also in 2014, Congress passed the Federal Information Security Modernization Act of 2014, FISMA. Now, FISMA then gave us the responsibility for the .gov. So, so like you start off broad, DHS, you have responsibility for critical infrastructure. 
And there's 16 sectors, one of which is communication within communication, your cyber. We authorize the body, the entity that's going to, to manage that responsibility. And then in FISMA, we start handing out what are you supposed to do. So FISMA, .gov, you have the responsibility for the .gov. And then also, um, well later on, because it actually didn't get enacted until 2015, we got the culminating legislation, and I say culminating because we had been working on it for over eight years to get comprehensive cybersecurity legislation. So December 2015, Congress passed the Cybersecurity Act of 2015. And the most important thing about that act is that it, it created the framework for information sharing with the private sector, which is vitally important if you're going to if you were supposed to be the agency or the organization that's responsible for interfacing with them, you've got to be able to pass information, both push and pull, and it provided some liability protections to the private sector for that information sharing, because that had been a, a hindrance, a hurdle, for much of the private sector was sharing information with the government because they thought that they would be open to um, lawsuits and other liabilities as a result of sharing it. The, the other important thing that the Cybersecurity Act authorized um, and how we share in the information, the system by which we share information, it, we call it the automated indicator sharing. The non-techie description of that is that I liken it to, in the law enforcement world, a BOLO. You know what a BOLO is? A be on the lookout? The AIS system works like a bolo for the private sector to tell them, be on the lookout for this IP address. If you see it coming, you know, it's not good news for you. And like I said, you'll get the techie description of that for merit, but, but that's the way I like to, to handle it. But with that series of legislation, we then, DHS was given the responsibilities for the private sector, and how we interface with them and our responsibility vis-a-vis -vis the private sector and then the responsibility for the .gov. And with that, I'm going to hand it off to Merritt and she can talk about how we operationalize those responsibilities. Thank you so much, Tia. If you could hold your applause till we get through the whole panel, I think it might be a better way to, to do it. Uh, Merritt is a senior cybersecurity strategist at the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Cybersecurity and Communications. Uh, that's um, uh, in the National Protection and Programs Directorate of uh, Homeland Security. Um, she is not only an attorney, but uh, she is in a policy position there, um, as uh, many attorneys are as they uh, move to uh, different governmental areas. Uh, Barrett is a graduate of both Harvard uh, and Harvard Law School. Uh, she um, uh, founded the women's tech advocacy group Tech and Roses. She is an adjunct professor of cybersecurity at the University of Maryland, and she's an amateur boxer as well. <laughs> and uh, we are very pleased, uh, Mary, to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, and thanks for coming today. Um, I think, you know, these kinds of venues are really important because I remember being a law student and thinking, this stuff is really interesting and how does anyone actually get on the other side of the podium? You know, it's not a very um, mature professional field, even though the issues have been around and are really 
uh, ever present. The ways to get into one of these jobs are not always transparent. In fact, they're almost always just like one-offs. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about my story and I wanna open, you know, for when we move to the question stage for you guys to also feel free to ask about just the, the process of becoming a professional in this field, um, both in national security or specifically in cybersecurity. Um, I had gotten really involved in law school and basically exhausted all of the courses within a semester. And um, in 2007, somehow we still didn't see this coming. Um, and so I started making up my own research projects, chasing stuff that I thought was interesting. So um, one of the things I would encourage you all to do is start writing. Um, find stuff that you're interested in and that you see coming down the pike and trust yourself. So you know, five years ago when I was writing about blockchain, all of a sudden now I look like the expert. It just becomes something that helps you um, prove that you were you know, thinking about these issues before you get into the interview. And I think, um, there's a sense as a law student that you're not qualified or that there's some kind of, you know, day when you will be minted into something more. But, you know, the emperor has no clothes and I think the sooner you sort of start to see yourself as an expert and develop expertise and if you can become specialized, and I mean that in a um, healthy sense, not narrow-minded, but really good at some things that you're into, the more uh, clear your path will be because people will need you. Um, so that's just a side note as I get to where I am now. Um, I clerked for the military appellate court, it's called USCAF, Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, in part because I had seen that military was confronting questions about the role of government in your living room um, a, a few years ahead of civilians um, having the same questions about you know, First Amendment and Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, so, you know, reaches for uh, searches, and then Fourteenth, so the ways that we're uh, interpreting due process and, and internet. Um, I specialized in law school in child pornography, basically. And so it turns out that USCAF reviews about two, thir about two thirds of the cases they review are child pornography appeals. Because there are these questions of, you know, what computer was being used and uh, what, whether the search was legal, mostly. Um, so that's just one example of the ways that you might you know, own a piece of the sky, but also be able to abstract it into why you're relevant more broadly. Um, so that's uh, part of how I got to where I am now. I became really convinced that the future of cybersecurity is civilian. Um, and if you look at the ways that, you know, company to company and company to government and citizen consumer to each of those, uh, those relationships are being negotiated and renegotiated all the time. It kind of looks like DHS is the you know civilian touch point for that. So that's why I ended up doing cybersecurity in um, the Office of Cybersecurity and Communications in NPPD, which we acknowledge is poorly named. Um, but it is so it's critical infrastructure protection. So it is comms, but it's also all the other sectors because frankly, all critical infrastructure now has internet and cyber components to it. So we are the cyber firefighters in the sense that, um, you know, whereas FBI wants to catch the bad guy or, you know, CIA and other intel agencies are looking to collect intelligence, we, uh, we are really trying to 
put out the fire and, and mostly prevent them in the first place. Um, so we do incident response and we do a lot of prevention and resilience and how to keep systems running, how to keep the lights on. Knowing that we're sort of living in a world of, um, I guess you could say of constant attacks, but really it's more like constant vulnerabilities because frankly with all the degrading systems and everything, we're the enemy as well. Um, so within that, uh, our mission is strongly um, def defined by being uh, the uh, it being the baseline of protection for the .gov civilian executive branch, um, and then uh, helping to protect, helping the private sector to protect themselves, because the major vast majority of critical infrastructure is privately owned and operated. That's a really crucial point, um, and frankly, as we see in an in internet landscape. Um, you know, private sector owns and operates the majority of the architecture, and so it is a unique place to be in a government mission where you're so closely um, working with industry and and not against each other's. Although there are political agendas all over, we tend to actually have close partnerships and to share share the goal of preventing breaches or of sharing better information in real time. And there are a lot of important legal questions that then crop up because you've got um, concerns about the reliability of information, you've got concerns about privacy and other um, sensitive information. So I'm going to go into those two mission areas a little bit more in depth and the in terms of the protectthe.gov, um, we now have what are called trusted internet connections or TICs through which our internet traffic travels in government agencies. Um, so that makes it a little easier. We can uh, see traffic a little better. And we have two major programs that um, try to help us to control the flow of bad traffic in government networks. Um, one is uh, commonly written about, you've probably read articles called Einstein. And there are, there's Einstein 1, 2, and E3A. Um, and they are progressively more, um, I would say, interactive. So. One just kind of passively monitors, two actively looks for threats, and then three is trying to become more predictive and um, to, well, to identify threats that we haven't seen before. Um, and then uh, continuous diagnostics and mitigation, or CDM, is something that actually private sector, I mean, almost every company or network would, would uh, have some CDM capabilities. Um, you're trying to monitor for, for uh, malicious activity. Um, within the .com, um, we have, and I guess also with the government mission, um, we have a number of ways that we try to improve cybersecurity from best practices, so encouraging and helping facilitate um, the adoption of NIST cybersecurity framework, among others, um, encouraging a stronger cyber ecosystem, so like helping uh, cybersecurity products to be more um, interoperable and also safer so that small and medium businesses can afford economies of scale. Um, and then um, information sharing is one of the biggest ones. And we do that in a number of ways, including like the uh, multi-state ISAC. We have now the concept of information sharing and analysis organizations, which um, 
are groups of organizations that are lined up in accordance with, it used to be sector and now it could be just interest. So it might be a geographical area or some, some group of folks that share a set of threat concerns. And they can share information and we can share back and forth with them as government. Um, and we now have piloted a program, um, as uh, Tia mentioned, uh, automated indicator sharing, which allows us to, an indicator is um, a unique uh, identifier of a cybersecurity threat, so it could be an IP address, it could be uh, a website, and we, um, we, we uh, take in and then push out that, those uh, bad indicators um, through automated languages called Sticks and Taxi. I won't, those are acronyms, but I won't bore you with the long version, uh, mainly because I don't even remember. Um, but they basically have, you know, fields that populate. This is partly the product of our engineers working with our lawyers to say, how do we get the information and look at the fields that might be privacy concerns and push it out in as little time as possible? And the answer for some, to some extent was to have automated languages so that we can speak the same language. Um, and the answer to another extent was have them only fill out certain fields so that we are not getting extraneous information. In fact, we have no way of, of accepting it. Um, and then the third layer was that of those fields, there are some that still may require manual human, uh, you know, uh, scrubbing for privacy concerns at some level. So this was, yeah, I think this program in particular is just an interesting example of how someone like me is integrating our Office of General Counsel saying we can't say real time because it's got to be near real time with our operators who are our engineers who say there's no such thing as real time. With our political requests from the Hill that say like we must say real time otherwise no one's going to trust the government to not be shielding information. And so we try to um, write solutions that are both technical and policy that um, accommodate what we really need to get done and also you know, make room for the concerns of what, it, wh what capabilities we are potentially um, hamstringing in future and also what we know the American people care about. Um, so that's a, those are some examples of the kinds of work we do. Um, feel free to you know, ask more detail if, if you want. Um, I would say my third um, point for today is always just like a call to arms, like the water is warm, um, and especially people who are not the typical um, like young white guy or old white guy who gets into this field. Um, I think it's really important to have people who think differently. You know, if you're an architect or um, an artist or what I mean. The more of the substance of life that we get around the table, the stronger our solutions are. So um, if you feel insecure about your technical skills, go bone up on some technical skills, and that is totally something that will serve you well. But I would also just say that there is no, um, there's, there's no barrier except your you know, willingness to sort of get in the water. And in terms of strategies for getting into the jobs, um, I'm glad to talk one-on-one, -on -one, and I think you should take people up on those, yeah, on those um, requests and uh, get 
get an elevator pitch for yourself. So decide what your brand is and make yourself say it in one sentence. Practice with your friends or in front of the mirror at what you're an expert in and also what you are looking for or sort of need from the world so that people know how they can help steer you. Merit, thank you yeah. very much. Uh, very interesting indeed. Our next panelist is Lieutenant Commander Elizabeth O'Connor, um, who hails from Wethersfield, Connecticut initially. Graduated cum laude from the College of Holy Cross in 2003 with a bachelor's degree in history. She was a member of the women's basketball team uh, there, including a stint as the captain of that team in her senior year. Graduated from the University of Connecticut School of Law in May 2007. After attending the Naval Justice School in, in 2007, she served as defense counsel and a legal assistance attorney at Naval Legal Service Office Northwest from December 2007 until May 2009. She served as the senior, ju senior judge advocate um, as the uh, on Fibron 7 from May 2009 to May 2010 uh, in an amphibious squadron uh, above aboard the USS Ponham Richard out of San Diego uh, and was deployed to the 5th Fleet for seven months in that capacity. And just to give you again just a few of the uh, uh, more recent uh, points in her distinguished career, she served as an assistant staff judge advocate at the United States Naval Academy and as an adjunct professor teaching military law for junior officers from August until December 2015. She currently serves as an operational attorney within the Office of General Counsel at the National Security Agency Central Security Service. Um, Lieutenant Commander Kahn. Thank you, sir. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Assistant Secretary Johnson, for uh, inviting me here. Um, uh, as you just heard, that bio uh, wasn't a lot of national security law in that background, right? Um, and uh, when I sat in your seat, I can assure you that I was not thinking about any position in national security law. Um, that was the furthest thing from my brain. In fact, um, I knew I wanted to join the Navy. Uh, I knew I wanted to go to law school, and I knew I wanted to combine those two. Um, how I was going to get there, I wasn't entirely sure. And if um, me talking sounds like I've stumbled into a lot of things in my life, uh, I think, in fact, that has happened. Um, I, uh, uh, summer after my first year of law school, I got a... Um, an email from a recruiter in the Navy that said, I heard you're interested in the, in the Navy JAG Corps. Um, that's great, your application is due in five days. Um, and me, out of the blue, was like, wow, this email came out of the blue. Like, the Navy must know things. Uh, in reality, I must have been Googling one day and indicated that I was you know, interested in the JAG Corps. Um, regardless, um, in that five-day period of time, I had to contact and get an interview with um, a, a senior uh, captain in the Navy. And I was in Connecticut, as um, uh, the professor said, where I was from. Um, there are not a lot of 06 captains in the Navy Jack Corps in Connecticut. Um, I randomly found one, caught him about 30 minutes before he went on vacation, and said, yeah, I think you I'll be back to the future. Um, I walked in in my best interview suit, expecting to see um, a seasoned Navy Jag in, in his uniform. And instead, I found a man in um, uh, a sweater, uh, jeans, and Birkenstocks and socks. And 
three and a half hours later, he shook my hand and said, welcome to the JAG Corps. And I said, that's interesting. I haven't even applied yet. <laughs> um, but was subsequently accepted. And um, so that was in my second year. I was commissioned as an ensign in the Navy. I'm excited. I'm thinking, well, now that I've got my, you know, I'm going to get my law degree. I'm in the Navy. I'm going to go and be on a ship and do lawyer things on a ship, right? Well, um, lo and behold, there are about 20 positions in the Navy JAG Corps where you're allowed to be a lawyer on a ship. So um, I was off doing legal assistance and defense work out in Seattle. Um, but as I will encourage you to do, uh, as your professors and mentors encourage you to do, you, you jump into any opportunity that you can get. And you excel in whatever opportunity that you're in because that will open up doors in other places. And in this particular case, um, being the best legal assistance attorney in the Northwest turned into me jumping over my desk and volunteering to go on a deployment on a ship. Finally, 18 <laughs> months into my Navy career, I got an opportunity to go advise um, senior level leaders afloat as we went from San Diego all the way across the Pacific Ocean into the Indian Ocean, into the Gulf of um, uh, Aden, and, and we proceeded to sit in a one mile square radius for about two, or let's see, 100 days straight. Uh, but I was, you know, out to sea, providing legal advice. So that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and I will tell you, at the time, I've been in the Navy for 18 months. Uh, very, very junior. And I'm advising a senior Commodore in charge of a portfolio of ships of about 3,000 personnel who's been in the Navy for 32 years. At the time, I was 20 years old. So, you can imagine where I had to bite my tongue a little bit when he's telling me about 32 years in the Navy, and I'm like, oh, that's not um, <laughs> But it was a good experience. And from there, I, uh, mm -hmm. I, I moved on to Virginia Beach, still looking, right? No national security law at this point, right? Doing a lot of administrative law, a lot of military justice. Um, moved to Great Lakes, where I um, moved into a training capacity where I was training junior attorneys and junior uh, uh, enlisted personnel who were in the paralegal field. Um, and in, in that capacity, I also was the legal advisor to Recruit Training Command, where all the enlisted sailors come through um, uh, to receive their training. Um, and in that capacity, I was dealing with a lot of allegations of sexual assault. In one year, I had 38 allegations of sexual assault. So again, not national security law, right? Um, about a year and a half ago, I was given the opportunity to take a billet, a Navy billet, at the National Security Agency uh, in the Information Assurance Cybersecurity uh, Department or Division. And I jumped at it. Not because I had any experience in it prior, um, but because it was interesting to me and I knew it was going to be challenging um, and intellectually stimulating in ways that my previous tours in the Navy had not been yet. So um, I've been there a little under a year. And I will tell you, um, while the subject matter is different, the, my approach is still the same. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think we've passed out an article yet, but there was an article in the, in the Washington Post last week that I thought was relatively uh, on point, which says government lawyers don't understand, understand the inter internet, and that's a problem. And my, when I read it and thought about that, um, sure, that could be an issue, but I look at my past experience for the last year and a half, and it's not that I don't understand the internet. It's that um, I have the humility to admit that I don't understand it, and I don't understand everything. 
but I can ask the right questions to learn the, just that smidgen, right? Just that little bit that I need to, to be able to provide that legal advice that's, um, that's accurate. Uh, because if you don't do that, you've got the blind leading the blind. You've got the operators who don't speak lawyer, lawyer talk, and you've got the lawyers who don't speak operations, and you're just button heads. Um, so that's not specific to national security law. You could apply that across the board. Having advised many different communities in the Navy, it's the same thing. You have to have that humility to say, I don't understand. Now, with that, my second piece of uh, advice that I've picked up is you also have, the, have to have the humility to say, I don't know, but I'm going to be able to find out. And I, um, I used to say this on the ship a lot when I was in that, that, that the legal advisor capacity when I was 18 months in the Navy. I would say I was a duck. Very, very calm on the, on the top of the water, but underneath scrambling to stay afloat. Um, and I would say, you know, sir, I, I think I'm 98% certain that I've got the right piece of legal advice to you, but yeah, I just I really want to really double check myself and make sure I don't confuse you. You know what, those operators appreciate that so much more than somebody who tries to shoot from the hip and give you that piece of advice at the moment, because if you're wrong, you've, you've lost everything. And they're just gonna put you in a corner and they're gonna continue to operate whether they get legal advice or not. So you don't want to be marginalized. And the way to do that is to have that humility to say, I don't know, but I'm gonna be able to find out for you. And they appreciate that. I've never had a, an experience where someone said, no, I need you to know now. Yeah, that's not the case. Um, so, um, as far as my personal experience at the NSA, um, Mary did a great job of talking about DHS's role. Um, uh, our role, uh, DOD's role, is to um, defend the nation, all right? So, we've got the dot mill, sure, um, and that's what U.S. Cyber Command does, who are co-located with us at NSA. Um, but in my capacity, working for the Information Assurance Cybersecurity Division, um, we're advising the NSA as the, uh, in their role as the national manager. So they are responsible for the protection and defense of national security systems. National security systems are, can be defined broadly, right? Um, and as you saw with Merit um, in talking, there's lots of acronyms. Um, if there's one thing uh, that constantly makes me laugh, it's the amount of acronyms that both the Navy and people in the government can use on a daily basis. Um, there have been meetings where I have literally kept tally of how many acronyms have been used, and I think I could make about five sentences worth of acronyms and not use any actual words. Um, but regardless, um, a National Security Systems acronym is NSS, so it makes sense, right? Uh, but um, we do not work directly with private entities. We don't have the authority to do that. We get our authority from Executive Order 12333, um, but we do interface a lot with DHS and DOJ, specifically the FBI, um, uh, via requests or um, uh, requests for technical assistance, right? And that is the vehicle with which we may assist DHS, FBI, DOJ, and other government entities in um, uh, protecting uh, or defending um, against cyber attacks. So, um, what do I do on a daily basis? I would say that um, one thing that I really love about my job is I no longer have an addiction to my cell phone. Um, I see a lot of smiles there, but you know, you're in class, you just want to check your Instagram, right, or whatever the new technology is. Um, 
my cell phone is in my car for a good 12 hours every day, and I love it. It is, um, it's, 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 it really provides you an opportunity to focus and um, research. Because I think in our, in our lives today, one of the biggest issues we have as lawyers is people want immediate answers. In our jobs, you can't give immediate answers. You have to do thorough research. And the only way you can do research is if you're left alone, right? And you can really focus in on an issue. And so I have that luxury where I don't have, at least that outside um, stimulus with a cell phone. Certainly you have the, the email, right, and the phone calls that are constantly coming in. Um, but that, uh, that provides you that opportunity to kind of really focus in and, and, and do that, that legal research that you need to provide good, thorough legal advice. Um, but uh, I would say with operational law, everyone loves that, that term because they think it's shiny and sexy, right? Well, with any operational law job, there's about 85 to 90% of mundane legal work, right? It's the administrative stuff that you have to do to be able to, to, to work in that shiny, sexy operational area. And so I'm doing a lot of things that attorneys regularly do, like reviewing memorandums of agreement, um, contracts. Uh, that to me, if you're rolling off, if your eyes are rolling, yeah, my eyes would roll too, right? But that's part of that 85, 90%. That's, you know, kind of not the greatest, but you are doing it. You got to remember what the mission is, right? This all goes back to what the NSA and what the DOD's mission is, and you're part of that giant machine that's, uh, that's at work. So um, with that said, uh, I'm interested in um, questions you have, and uh, can certainly answer those later on. So thank you. Commander, thank you very much. Uh, our final panelist is Angie Chen. Angie serves currently as the Vice President, General Counsel, and Chief Compliance Officer for Siemens Government Technologies, where she also serves as the company's Corporate Secretary and Ethics Officer. Uh, Siemens is an indirect subsidiary of the German corporation, Large Siemens, the largest engineering company in Europe, and uh, SGT, where she works as a federally compliant U.S. company that delivers solutions to the U.S. government drawn from and comprised of the full spectrum of Siemens global uh, products and services. Her career, again, just to give you a brief uh, part of this distinguished career, includes prior service as the Deputy Assistant General Counsel for Information Security with the National Security Agency, Assistant General Counsel with the International Telecommunications Satellite Organization, Intelsat, as well as several years in private practice in the D.C. area, specializing in class actions and antitrust and securities complex litigation, focused on high technology and manufacturing sectors. From 2000 to 2013, as an adjunct professor at George Mason University Law School, um, Ms. Chen co-taught a national security and technology course with former Secretary of the Army and Virginia Congressman at that point, uh, John O. Marsh. Um, I am going to stop with that because for those of us here at the law school, Jack Marsh was uh, a very, very special uh, individual that we love dearly. And he is the one responsible, as David knows, for the uh, LLM are the um, actual full LLM program at the Judge Advocate General School of the Army. And he had served uh, 
uh, as a, uh, in the White House as a very uh, special advisor to the President of the United States. So, Angie, you had a, a pretty good uh, uh, co-teacher there with Jack. A co-teacher, friend, mentor, um, so many other things, uh, which you know, sort of lends me, I know we're losing people and I know folks have either classes or other engagements. Um, so first I want to say thank you for uh, having me here. It's a real privilege. And, and in particular, I want to thank the folks that took the time to come out and listen to all of us because I think it's one of the key things about being in a law school and sort of pursuing your, <clears throat> excuse me, your education because, you know, I, I actually am so envious of where you're sitting. So if any of you are sitting there thinking, wow, they have really good careers and I'd like to be done today, it's actually flipped around the other way because you have know, to be extraordinarily excited for all of you, but also very grateful that you're, you're willing to come out and spend your time to hear what we have to say. Um, I have four quick questions to ask you. Um, first of all, uh, just by show of hands, and you don't have to, no pressure, but how many of you think you really want to pursue a career in national security law? It's okay if you don't. Free lunch, it's okay too. How many of you think you know generally where you will be in about 10 years? Law firm, corporate. Raise your hand high, come on, the confidence. <laughs> okay, three, That's right, yeah. let's go. How many of you think you'll be employed in 10 years? Good, all right. How many of you think you'll be in a job that you love? How many of you want to be in a job that you love? There you go. Yeah. All right, so the reason I asked you those questions is because um, I've had a very, very peripatetic career. Uh, over 20 years, um, some of the pieces that got left out, I spent 10 years as well with Lockheed Martin, which is the largest defense contractor uh, in the United States. Six of those years were in the field with a joint venture between Lockheed Martin and two Russian entities, where we essentially marketed and sold launch vehicle services, both using a US system and a Russian system. Um, I spent time with the National Security Agency, so we are, I'm a fellow alum. Um, one of the most wonderful and most dedicated and most unsung uh, missions uh, throughout the entire U.S. government. Um, I started in private practice. Uh, right now I am working for Siemens Government Technologies, which has an, an incredibly breathtaking breadth of uh, products and services, not all of which are essentially pointed towards uh, the federal government, but all of which essentially should be available to the, to the U.S. government for deployment. Um, I spent the last six years before joining Siemens with a shipbuilder where we actually manufactured the littoral combat ship for the U.S. Navy as part of one of the critical components of the future state of the naval fleet. Um, I will tell you today, I had absolutely no idea that I would actually end up where I am now. The one constant in terms of all of the things that I've done has been that I followed what interested me. I followed what looked like it would be a lot of fun. I followed what in fact looked like a good opportunity and I jumped ship at times where in fact you know, I was happy where I was, but something else looked far more interesting and felt like it might become something more fulfilling uh, with respect to what I wanted to do with my life. <clears throat> if you asked me the same questions that I posed you, I have absolutely no idea where I'm going to be in 10 years. Um, I do think that I'll probably be employed because I just do very badly with idle time. Um, so I'll be doing something. Uh, I don't know exactly what, but I'm, I'm certain that it's going to be something that I love because I'm going to make that choice. So I encourage each of you, as you think about what we share with you today, and as you kind of go about your daily lives, and you're sitting there in whatever, whatever year you guys are in, if it's in you know, constitutional law, if it's in uh, environmental law, whatever class you're sitting there and you're bored to death, just remember you're just taking steps in a journey. 
to get someplace. But you ought to keep in mind that if your goal is to be employed in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years and you want to be employed in a job that you love, you need to make more conscious decisions about those steps that you take than not. So that's my little soapbox. Um, you've heard a little bit about my story. Um, I will tell you that most of the time I too stumbled uh, into sort of where I went. I think out of my seven or eight or so jobs, um, so don't think I can't hold down a job, I actually can, <laughs> uh, but out of, out of the six or seven, eight jobs that I've held um, that were substantive, I would say over two thirds of them, somebody actually came and courted me to come to that position. Um, one of them was completely serendipitous, which was fantastic, which was uh, the job at Intelsat, which at the time was an international organization. It was the world's first uh, and used to be the only operator of a geosynchronous satellite system, which means satellite, any of you science fiction fans, Arthur C. Clarke, geosynchronous satellites, three satellites, 22,300 miles uh, above the surface of the Earth, can basically cover the entire Earth. Um, formed by treaty in 1969 and then essentially run as an international organization, uh, technically based until somewhere in the 2000s where Congress decided, in fact, it was time for it to privatize because the market had changed. Um, that job I actually got because I answered an ad in the newspaper. Uh, I was in private practice, I was perfectly happy with what I, was, what I was doing, really loved complex litigation, very exciting, very driven, uh, you know, and loved the high technology pieces of it because you'd, you'd move from case to case and learn all sorts of really neat, fun things. When um, I kind of was interested, there was this weird ad it just sort of said, uh, are you ready? It was really cheesy. Are you ready for a career that's out in the stars or out of this world? Um, I had no idea what Intelsat was. And it said, are, are you familiar with international procurement, uh, project financing, international law, international organizations? There were six, six different things there, um, of which I knew maybe two. Uh, but I went ahead and sent in a resume. At the time, you had to mail it in. Um, so it cost me, a, I think at the time, 26 cents. I'm showing my age, 26 cents stamp. Um, and lo and behold, they actually called me in for an interview, which knocked me off my feet, because I had no idea what I offered. And went in, had an interview, uh, basically said, I, I really don't know any of these four things, but I do know international law, kind of interested in it, um, so I know what it is. I know or international organizations, I know what the UN is, so you know, there's, there's two for two. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I wasn't really totally flippant, because of course what you do is you prepare, right? That's what you're being taught to do. Use those wonderful brain cells of yours. Use the skills that you're learning here to think critically and make your pitch. So, so my pitch at that time was, yes, I am clueless when you look at this ad, even from what I can comprehend of it, but what I've been doing is in the last five or six years is complex litigation. And here's what the skills are that I've learned that I can apply to whatever you want to throw at me. Mm -hmm. Whether it was going to fly or not, who knows? It did. Um, I got home. I was laughing at my husband. I said, well, this is, this is kind of one of those learning experiences, kind of go in to a job interview for something you have absolutely no idea. There was really no internet at that time for me to go and Google, much less you know, uh, understand. So it was really on my own. Uh, and about 8.30 p.m. that night, I got a phone call from the gentleman who had, uh, the general counsel who had interviewed me, and he said, you're it. And I promptly, very graciously and professionally said, you're kidding. Um, Leo, Leo Milstein and I ended up being very, very good friends. But the, the, the message there is sort of, you know, take the opportunities where you are. Don't let fear or uncertainty, as, as I think Tia and Mara had mentioned too, you know, don't, don't go in 
short-circuiting yourself in terms of something is interesting, go and pursue it. Do the best you can. Prepare this as best you can. If you get it, great. If you don't, it's still okay. It's a learning experience because you have no idea where it's going to lead. And in fact, it was that job in particular that started me down the path that I ended up so that I got to where I am now. And I wouldn't change, frankly, a single piece of it, um, um, if, even if somebody asked me if I, if I would, were going to do that. Um, from the cyber and the substantive piece, so I mentioned when Tia and I were talking about this panel, um, she, Tia is one of those people that, uh, you know, number one, she's so effervescent um, and so knowledgeable that you really can't say no. <laughs> so um, there, there are very few people, I will confess to you, who would basically give me a call and say, hey, do you mind driving two and a half hours, uh, you know, sort of ignore everybody that's going on in the company running around with their hair on fire uh, and, and speak to law students. Uh, and oh, by the way, don't even just talk to about careers, but let's, let's do something really neat. Let's talk about substantive stuff, right? Um, and, and not just substantive stuff, let's talk about uh, something manageable, like cyber. Uh, so, you know, but, but Tia, Tia has that effect. Um, and, and I want to emphasize that too, because the four of us, I know Tia extremely well. Um, Mare and Liz, I've just met. But one thing that they hammer into you, but they don't really tell you what it means when you're in law school, is you, you need to network. You need to network. I'm going to close my comments by re-emphasizing this because ultimately everything in terms of your career, everything in terms of national security, and everything in terms of cyber in particular, because we are in a super scary period of time right now, and you guys are going to provide the leadership, but it's not the four of us here. We're basically just part of a larger vanguard and waterfront. It's actually you guys. You're going to have to figure out not how to solve the problem, because it's not a solvable one. You're going to have to figure out how to manage it and how to make sure that we can live in this world in a way that is safe, that is smart, that is thoughtful, and meaningful in terms of the choices that we make individually and collectively. And that's going to be on your shoulders. Sorry, guys. We're just going to be passing the buck down to you um, as we go forward. But it's really critical, because at the end of the day, not a single one of you is going to be able to do it alone. So. Look at the people sitting around you, look at the people in your classes, look at the people that you graduated from high school and the folks that you'll be working with. Every step of the way, you're not going to carry all of them along with you, but that's where you're going to find the people that are going to be your support system and the people that you're going to be able to look out to as resources to say, hey, I've got a question, or hey, I'm clueless, I have no idea, or hey, you think this is a good idea, or what inputs do you have in terms of how can I, how can I approach this issue, this problem set a little differently? A little bit about the private sector's role with respect to cyber. Um, how many of you think you know, and don't, don't lean on uh, you know, uh, uh, Al Gore's commentary, but when, when do you think the internet actually started? 20 years ago? 30 years? More than 30? More than, t less than 10? You guys all fall asleep. All right, I'll just 30. 30, 30. It's actually 50, over 50 years ago. Um, and what happened was the concept of a galactic network, obviously this gentleman who was at MIT was, uh, let's just say, on the nerdy side, uh, um, but he, he came up with this concept of a galactic network, which would be essentially a, a universal communications infrastructure. So the concept was really born at MIT, and then it took about another you know, five or six, ten years. What happened was this gentleman, uh, Dr. Licklider at MIT, uh, went on to become the first head of DARPA, uh, the defense Oh, how Defense Agency Defense for Advanced Research, Research, Research Projects Agency. <laughs> Another thing you will learn, if you actually do want to, if you're really interested in the NSA, um, as Liz said, uh, you will be inundated and buried with acronyms. And 
all of us will completely confess that we have no idea what happened to me anymore because it just becomes sort of second nature. But he became the first head of DARPA, which is the premier research and development arm for the Department of Defense. Um, and from there, and there's a, there's a bunch of really great books out there, um, how, how Wizards Started the Internet is one. Um, there's a couple other ones that sort of lay out the history of the internet. You can even go, I, I hate to say this, go to Wikipedia and it'll, it'll sort of lay out. Uh, the Internet Society also has a very good um, brief description of the history of the internet. From there, they started creating hubs so that different agencies could talk to each other. In parallel, academia played a huge role in the beginning because they needed to communicate to each other. And it used to be that they were a very single channel. So I would have a terminal here so I could talk. I'm sitting here at Stanford and I could talk to Caltech and I would have the single channel, so this computer is like the little cup in the string, right, except on a computer terminal. And then in order to talk to Liz, I'd have to have another computer and so I could talk to Liz. So this all evolved and it's been essentially, I would say, probably less than 15 or 20 years where it became quite as ubiquitous um, as it is now. So Liz, sort of, you all grinned and laughed when she said, you know, she leaves her phone. I'll tell you, I remember having my first cell phone um, at the time of the Motorola's came out, mm -hmm. and it was a Landsat, which was this big, and the first, the, the first version was a brick, and yeah. it basically cost something along the lines of $5,000, and it weighed about five pounds, and nobody had it except for like rich oil sheiks who were running around carrying around their little limousines. And then over time, it kind of got a little smaller, but it was still pretty big. And then we went into Blackberries, and that was really cool, because you could actually type and stuff like that. Um, and now, you know, I've got my, my recent treat. I have an Apple Watch, which can basically tell me I've been sitting for too long, and I need to stand up and start moving around, right? So, so the, the thought of, of not being close to your electronic tether is actually kind of worrisome, right, for a lot of people, because you, you, this need, this constant need for connectivity has become so ingrained that it's, it's difficult for us to remember that it wasn't always that way. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, all it's doing is it's simply changing the way in which we are able to communicate and our modes for communicating. What does that mean for the private sector? Well, as was mentioned earlier, I don't remember if it was Mayor or um, Liz who said it, uh, how many of you get your internet service from the government? How many of you buy you know, your, your devices, your personal devices from the government? How many of you keep your, how many have your data, if you have a clearance that's different, um, how many of you keep your data, let, let the government keep your data, willingly, not the stuff that you have to submit. <laughs> right, so, so where is all that stuff sitting? It's sitting in the private sector. It's sitting in the private sector. This wasn't news um, to the vast majority of folks. So what happened was in 1993, or 1998, sorry, May of 1998, um, then President Clinton issued a pres presidential directive order. Uh, any of you who have taken administrative law will know that that's, that's an executive, it's an it's a, a exercise of executive power that the president can essentially issue. It doesn't have, it can have funding implications and that you always have to keep in mind when you're dealing with the government, be aware of the appropriation cycle. But the president can in fact issue uh, a presidential or executive order, um, essentially to to have something happen. And so in May of 1998, PDD 63 was issued, and what that did was it identified critical infrastructure sectors. Mm -hmm. It was a recognition that our world was changing, and it was changing in such a way that because so much of the infrastructure that made our country run was owned and operated by the private sector, and it was therefore other than regulatory reach, out of the reach and control of the government, or out of the, the direct influence of the government, they needed to at least 
find a way to get these sectors to start talking, because otherwise our critical infrastructure was becoming more and more at risk. Now, I would speculate a little that the government was thinking it was more at risk because you can't really govern well if you don't have at least a sense of what, is el what else is out there. And as soon as something happens, I'm thinking of the, uh, the Northeast blackout, um, where there was a cascading failure, where a number of states and parts of Canada lost power for natural reasons. There was a storm, uh, a major relay system was basically taken down. Those are the types of things where every single one of us is going to look to the government to fix. It's good. We're going to look to the government to respond. We're going to look to the government to natural disasters. We always go to the government. Well, what do you do, in fact, if the infrastructure that supports or enables the government to actually take action is all owned and operated by the private sector? So PDD 63 recognized that. They identified core sectors. Some of them were financial services, utilities, transportation, things like that. Um, flash forward a little bit. Uh, then what happened out of the, and by the way, the acronym, a terrible acronym there, um, which actually is probably as bad, about as bad as NIPP is, uh, was CHOW. Uh, that actually stood for the Critical Infrastructure Assurance Office. It was buried in commerce, and you remember I mentioned it was an executive order that essentially created uh, CHOW. Uh, it had no funding. And so even though it had a tremendous, if you can imagine, right, this tremendous mission, this task in front of, of trying to coordinate all of these information sharing uh, uh, centers and these different sectors and people figuring out who they are and deciding whether or not they wanted to share crown jewels or share vulnerabilities with each other. Um, they had essentially no funding. Um, so it was very, very difficult and rough going for a while. But over time it began to take more and more recognition. Um, and so then what happened was a very curious thing. One was the formation of the Department of Homeland Security, yeah. uh, which did not exist before. Homeland Security wasn't a thing. It used to always be national security. And if we had had this panel 10 years ago, and certainly 15 years ago, you would have seen a very, very different panel here in front of you on a number of fronts. One, I, I, and I don't think that this is particularly a, a sexist thing to say, um, but I, I severely doubt you would have had one, much less four women. I severely doubt you would have had one, much less to at least um, people of color. Um, and you sure as heck would have had me because the private sector historically was not considered part of the national security apparatus of the United Nations, the United States, for the United Nations. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is this movement in terms of the technology, the ubiquitousness of the internet and the computing systems and the communication modes and, and who owned and operated the technology and the research and development. Some of you may have been following what happened in the San Bernardino shooters. A situation where the FBI was looking to try and force a private sector company to create code to affect the law enforcement desire. For good intent, nobody's arguing that. You had to be able to get into that phone. But think about the private sector where, in fact, your stakeholder, which is When I was there at the NSA, one of the things that I took away, I kind of sensed it before I went there, um, but certainly took away from it is, is the mission of protecting the homeland, 
by protecting the warfighters, not just for offensive capabilities, such as what I was supporting when I was at Lockheed Martin, but also for defensive capabilities, and also for enabling facilitation capabilities, which is what I do a lot of today at Siemens government. We essentially look at SCADA systems and operational controls, and a lot of it is not particularly sexy, um, but it is necessary because you need people who are trusted agents to be able to go in and help on the logistics side for an army base. You need people who are able to go in overseas uh, to an installation and be able to do the wiring. You need people who are going to be able to understand and who can be trusted with classified programs to essentially help build the infrastructure on behalf of the Department of Defense to basically provide the type of support that's needed for our warfighters who are basically constantly there standing on the fence standing on the wall and making sure that, in fact, our nation is safe. And that also obviously applies here, within the United States for continental U.S. and, and uh, off-continental. So these are the types of things that private sector attorneys now actually do have a mission, do have an obligation to keep in mind. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be in the defense sector. It just so happens that, for my career, um, just a little bit over the last 15 years has, in fact, been in the defense sector. But even if you are not in the defense sector, even if you're just in private practice, it is still something that Frankly, even if you don't end up pursuing or you're not interested in pursuing a career in national security law, this is no longer an area where you can afford to be ignorant. Mm -hmm. The same thing for cyber. There is no job anywhere that anyone could possibly hope to describe to me where they would convince me that cyber is not relevant. Now, depending on what you want to do with your career, you may want to be more of an individual contributor and you may not particularly like people and you may not want to necessarily have to interface with people and do all the type of collaboration because it's a lot of work and it may not be the thing that interests you. If that's the case, then recognize that in terms of what it is that you want to do. I'm not talking if you're an introvert. I'm talking about if you truly, you want to basically just take a problem and you want to chew at it and you just don't want to let it go and that's what makes you happy, then understand that that's what you're going to be. If you're going to be an IP attorney, as an example, not to say that they're like that, right? But, but IP, is just one of those, <laughs> IP is just one of those fields where you can, if you have that bent, where you can actually take a skill set, which is very, very exacting, extremely demanding. You have to work hard. You have to pass the bar, the patent bar. But you can afford, in that case, to be able to sit in a back room and not necessarily go out and understand what is the statutory authority when you deal with the NSA. What is the statutory authority with respect to someone who is up on the Hill as a staffer to one of the congressional committees. Those are the types of things you don't have to worry about. But understand that about yourself in terms of what is it that you want to have by way of an environment. What is the subject matter you want to pursue. If you want to do national security and that doesn't necessarily lend yourself to being in a position where you are doing operational law and you have to learn and develop the executive presence to talk to a general or flag officer, if you want to be up on, on a, in a policy position and have to deal with Congress, which of course is always very clear about what they want and never persuaded or influenced by other or multiple you know, interests, um, those are the types of things that you should figure out as you kind of go along. But recognize that Regardless, again, this is an area where you should be aware and aware of the people that are actually out there. So one thing we don't have on this panel because we couldn't have enough people kind of going out the door is, for instance, law enforcement. Um, I spoke at a conference yesterday that was sponsored by the Department of Homeland Security and Department of Justice, and people are struggling. The, the, uh, we have copies of this article um, that Liz mentioned that was in the Washington Post just uh, last week about government lawyers don't understand the Internet, that's a problem. Uh, she sent it around and we were all very excited about it because it's part of our message, right? We need more people who are at least savvy. You don't have to be a techie. You don't have to necessarily be able to talk tech, but you better recognize that you can't. Mm -hmm. And you better recognize 
who I'm going to go to if I need to somehow communicate, I need to translate, if I need someone to be the translator for me and my CISO, my, my, computer, uh, my uh, chief information security officer, if I can't do it, I better find someone who can. Um, if I need to basically respond to a cyber breach to my company, and I need to either get internal or external IT folks involved, I better find a way so I can translate not just to those resources, but also to my board of directors and my senior management what the heck is going on. It is not good enough to be able to just simply say, I have no clue, because I didn't grow up as a computer science major, um, and so you know I'm just going to walk away. You can't do that anymore. But this article is interesting because um, I actually went ahead and shared it with my co-panelists from yesterday, and the response I got back from, from the woman who was a justice uh, in the computer crimes and intellectual property section was very swift. Um, and, and deserve it with respect to sort of my, I was sort of like, hey, look, you know, somebody's actually focusing on this. You need to get more people who are, who are, who are cyber savvy. And she pointed out, she said, you know, it's kind of a lie because the numbers that this reporter basically put out did not take into account the vast numbers and the vast progress, in fact, that the government has made in terms of developing the breadth and the depth of expertise in this area across the span, but certainly amongst the three folks that you see here who are in different parts of the government. Um, I would challenge anyone to say that they're not cyber savvy. Maybe not on the technical details, but they're certainly aware of the implications of cyber. Um, there are whole different sub-agencies and sub-departments within all of the major departments also that are focusing on cyber. Um, all of those have a piece of national security. So uh, the, the story, the moral of the story there is that it actually is a good article, but as with all things, frankly, have a healthy dose of skepticism in terms of what you read. Get the gist of the message that was being sent out there, but trust but verify. Um, because in fact, I literally, until, until uh, uh, Assistant Attorney General uh, Caldwell actually came back to me, she said, and I clearly hit a hot button because uh, this reporter did not speak to DOJ <laughs> before actually writing the story. Um, and so there's actually going to be, and you can look for it, there's going to be a letter to the editor uh, from the Public Affairs Office Officer of Justice basically filling in the blanks so that there's a better picture or story of that. So the moral of the story is, so I'll wrap up, is um, number one, follow what it is that is in your heart. Um, don't go, go to different panels. Uh, you know, if you find someone's career fascinating, pull on that thread a little bit. Figure out, you know, was it just because uh, they told good jokes? Uh, was it because they had good food? Was it because um, there was something about what they said of their career which kind of seemed interesting and you want to find out more. Um, and then figure out the ways to do that. So the offer's been made that we're available to have one-on-ones with you. Um, take people up on that offer. Make sure you learn different skills for informational uh, interviews as opposed to don't go tromping in and saying, hey, you know, I want a job. Um, you know, that's learn the different ways of being able to connect with other people, but don't be afraid to reach out and ask, right? Um, two, realize it's a journey. Um, we, we, in one of our planning discussions here, I think it's really important to realize that none of us got here straight out of the box. Some of us got there a little bit quicker, um, either by uh, happenstance or by choice or by, because someone actually helped them along the way. But ultimately, what you really need to focus on now, if you're just starting your career and you still don't quite kind of know, you want, to, you want to be in a job you love in 10 years, but you don't know exactly what it is, you think you might know, get good at the basics. Really get good at the basics. If I had not really focused on being good at complex litigation, I would not have been able to follow the path that I have now. And it was because I was good at each step at something. I won't say I was great, but I was good and I was at least focused 
those times when I got pulled out, it was because somebody knew I was good at something and they said, we'd really love you to come and join us. We'd really love you to consider working for us. That's the best thing. That's when you know. That happens once in your life, you're doing something right. If it happens multiple times, hey, that's a home run. But you can't be complacent because each step is still yet another step in your journey. And there's no end to it. Sad to say, you're not going to arrive until you're dead, right? Your, your life is your journey. So you don't want to be standing still. You want to be, again, making those conscious decisions. The last thing is be really curious. All right, so you've gotten the first step. You've come out here. You wanted to hear you know, what we had to say. Maybe it's interesting. Maybe it's not. Maybe you'll remember it. Maybe you won't. But be curious. Be agile. Don't have a game plan. I'm so glad I didn't ask the question because God forbid someone actually said, yeah, I know I want to be the general counsel of DuPont in 14 years, and I'm going to basically first be a partner. In my time teaching at George Mason, there were actually people who thought that way. And I, I won't criticize because who knows? Maybe they will. Who knows? It, it probably has happened somewhere uh, in the world that someone had a game plan and plotted out their life you know, 20 years in advance. But I guarantee you, most of the people that I've talked to and that I admire and that I look and say, well, you've had an awesome career. What a fantastic journey. Half of them said, you know, I really had no plan. I had no idea. I, I'll tell you a secret. I ended up in law school by accident. I actually wasn't intending at all to go. In fact, I fought my mom like crazy to not ever go to law school. Of course, that left her a, di a dilemma because I wasn't going to become an engineer and I wasn't going to become a doctor. And so there I was, you know, kind of putzing around. And then, uh, I forbid, you know, I kind of blew her mind because after I got my bachelor's, I actually went to go pursue a bachelor's in fine arts and illustration. And then that's how I actually ended up. And that's a story for over a year. That's how I actually ended up in law school through a very, very weird sequence of events. Um, and I actually didn't think I was going to stay. Uh, and, you know, lo and behold, weirder things happen. But, but long story short, be brave. Have the courage, because honestly, there, is, there are more opportunities lost because you were afraid of something. You were afraid you weren't good enough. You were afraid you couldn't do it. You were afraid it was out of your reach. And all I can say to that is it's your life. And if other people before us or any of the four of us sitting here today didn't at some points in our life say, you know what, I am not going to be afraid, then we would not have been able to have the careers that we've had to date. And we're not going to make as best the decisions as we could have, both individually and then from the national security perspective for the nation. And it's important because we need smart, impassioned, dedicated people in this field, in this space, in the legal community. Because otherwise, it is a team sport. We're not going to get there alone. We're not going to be able to do it singularly. And it's necessary because right now I think about my kids. I've got a senior in high school and a sophomore. And I'm scared to death of the world that they're going to grow up in. But i got to tell them they have to be brave because they're going to have to figure it out. You guys are going to have to figure it out. And then to the extent that any of you guys have kids, you're going to be passing the baton to them. And so hopefully we'll have a better handle on this and we'll be still ahead of the game. So. My comments. Angie, thank you very much. And before opening it to uh, questions from the audience, let's uh, give a good round of applause for everyone. That was just terrific. Uh, let's open it up to questions from the audience, but I'm also going to give the same invitation to panelists to 
make any comments they'd like to as we go along. So, first question. Yes, sir. Um, so, I worked for four years doing web development before I came to law school, and one of the reasons I've kind of like not gone towards cybersecurity, national security law, is because there seems to be a tension on the operational side between like security and civil liberties, and I was just wondering if you guys could talk about that a little bit and how you see that in your careers. Yeah, I'll, I'll get it to Mary. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was going to actually, as the uh, other women were talking, I then realized I should have hit on this more. My background is actually um, a lot of work with startups. I was working in Boston in the, like, the tech corridor, and I loved the fact that you're pushing the horizon. And I am also cognizant, I mean, as you talk about DARPA and the origins of the internet, I mean, there was this like belief that we were um, innovating for innovation's sake, and it's part of like the space push, and the there's something really um, exciting, and I don't feel the same like life is so scary. I actually think we accept some degree of risk and some degree of um, elements of our lives, and we like young people especially do it pretty consciously. Um, like we bank online because it's super convenient. And yes, there are insecurities associated with those transactions, but we're also working on, you know, transacting land deeds through blockchain. So, you know, like there are ways that I think there's two sides of the same coin. The more we sort of push at the horizon, the more we accept some risk. I think I got into DHS work because I see it as sort of the public health version of cybersecurity where I don't care about catching one bad guy. I care about um, having the most impact as one, as one person that I can have. Um, and so because of that, I'm working on these vast distributed problems that I think for a lot of people are not that sexy because there's no man with a mustache on the other end. But for me, I think that having, and I would you know, put that out to you to sort of look at what it is about developing stuff that's exciting and how we might not only sort of develop security solutions or whatever that are, that, are, uh, that are that same mentality of pushing the horizon, but also think about the ways that our lives are going to change. Like, what will the world look like in five years? And so, as we think about you know, cars with no driver, what's, what are the liability questions around that? What are the utility questions around that? What are the human rights questions around that? I mean, like, there are a lot of um, ways that I think we should be emboldening lawyers to feel like these are their problems, because they are. Um, and it's especially great if you do have a tech background, because then you can ask questions like, why are we assuming that we would, you know, program this in Java or whatever? I mean, I think one of my main concerns is that as we, in the world, as we interact more and more with the other side of the interaction is a robot or a machine, that the fact that our programmers are primarily from the same demographic and the same geographic place, which is young white guys in Silicon Valley, that we're constraining the world that we live in and that our choices will be programmed in ways that actually we won't even start to notice anymore. So I have like really um, urgent uh, senses of what these problems are, but they're also like the other side of that coin is making sure that we 
are attentive to the ways that we um, transact in really fundamental ways that involve a physical infrastructure. So we've got undersea cables, we've got an Amazon cloud that houses the government's information. You know, there, there's really like ugly distributed medical and other forms of, and SCADA and other forms of technology that I think beg for people who are good to find them interesting because it's the foundation of what we do. But what I see the role for a, you know, a developer in is really to like confront these challenges with the excitement of someone who loves the technology and is not afraid. And I was going to say, thanks Mary, that that was the, the balance, striking the balance between the ability to secure the systems and the ability to advise the private sector with, with the best practices and the concern about the privacy and civil rights and civil liberties was, was one of the huge stumbling blocks to ultimately getting the Cybersecurity Act of 2015. And it had to be worked out. And, and we worked it out. And you heard Merritt explain how we, we put in this tiered system to ensure that, um, I was about to say PII, another acronym, but, but that um, privacy information was in fact not being inadvertently distributed. Um, and so, like Merritt, I would welcome, because see, we need, we need attorneys who understand the technical piece of that to be able to then bring, up, bring the law and superimpose it on there and come up with the solution. See, I'm, I'm an old fart. I can only do the constitutional law side of it. It's like, okay, I can do the legal part. I, I don't know what skate is. Yeah, that's the thing that runs the grids, right? Um, but, but, but that is very important. So don't shy away from it. Um, as Angie said, be, be bold. You, you have to bring the skill set that you possess and apply it to that problem set. And we all bring different skill sets. And it's, and it's in bringing together those various skill sets that we then can come up with a solution. So yeah, to, to, get, to get over the hump on cybersecurity, we had to talk to the privacy and, and civil rights, civil liberties folks. And they had to talk to the techies. And then we had to figure out a way that, that a system could be built that would protect those privacy rights and at the same time achieve what, what both Congress wanted us to achieve and what the private sector and the .gov needed was to be able to be warned, monitor, detect, and block. So, so yeah. let me add one, comment, one more comment to that. So the beauty of having a true technical background like, like Merritt and you do, uh, and marrying that up with the law means that, as you both know, it's all in the design. Mm -hmm but you can't design the appropriate balance to achieve what you're intending to if you don't understand what is the priority. So the discussion about privacy versus security, um, it's age old and some people say, you know, choose one or the other and so it's almost like a, it's a bilateral decision. You can't have one without compromising the other. I actually don't yeah. believe that's true. But you are only going to be able to figure out where you want to go and how they're going to overlap so you can achieve both to satisfaction or the best opportunity you can if you have the ability to put that into the design. And that's where that translation piece is so critical because you're not going to be able to articulate what is the dominant or what is the balance unless you have the legal training to understand how you want to weave that into what comes up the, the back end. You can't articulate that to the folks who have to design the system so that it can be implemented and executed in the way that it's intended to. So I, I actually think it's a bit of a fiction 
when the pe yeah. when people are saying, well, you know, yeah, well, it's not well, a, it's not a dichotomy. Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's not one or the other, but it all depends on can you design the system, and can you do it in a thoughtful and yeah. knowledgeable manner. I love that point. It's not a zero-sum game. That being said, hardening and embrittlement are, right? So, um, so I think that it's, but I think that matters. So it also may be that in, I bet you in 10 years, a good portion of you will not be in a general counsel role or not in a traditional lawyer role. So it's also worth considering if you want to be a developer who has a law degree, who knows how the rules of the road work. And so you know how to avoid the downfalls. Or if you're um, an entrepreneur who wants to start a company um, that you know works in whatever set of uh, constraints that you're in, you'll have the benefit of sort of knowing the chessboard in a dimension that I think, um, as you mentioned, um, Angie, that there is no such thing as someone who like can afford to not be a cyber person. But also, by the same token, I think, to my mind, and I am a constitutional law geek too, there's a, um, a really uh, critical moment now for us to be thinking citizens to continue to hold, you know, the, the FBI is supposed to want to get into every device because they're trying to make a case, and we as citizens are supposed to decide what the rules are and, and to draw those lines and to be thoughtful about the values by which we want to live. Yeah. And so that is an ongoing process, and we are certainly always negotiating those lines, and the more um, awareness we have or the more um, textured those decisions can be, the better for um, us as a collective. Okay, yeah. next question. I say, come on, give us a softball one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, Liz can take this one. Yes, we'll let Liz stop. I'll tell you, my first experience when I was on that ship, um, I uh, was working for, uh, at the time, <clears throat> I was the only female um, lieutenant up in the Northwest. And uh, there was a book club, and the book club was for the spouses. And um, the lieutenants said that they wanted to have a poker night. And uh, I was playing basketball with them, and I found out there was poker night. And I said, I was you know, really upset about this. Um, not because I know how to play poker, I have no idea how to play poker. Um, but the fact that all of my fellow junior officers were going to be convened with that camaraderie, right? Um, and they hadn't invited me. So I was like, how do I deal with it? How do I deal with it? I don't know. So I was like, hey, are you scared to play poker with a woman? And the response was, well, you've got book club. And I'm like, no, I don't. Like, book club is for the spouses. Like, I don't want to hang out with your spouses. So that was my, my, my first, you know, call it out, right? Um, but when I went to the ship, I asked a, a senior female attorney, like, hey, how do I navigate this? And she said, you really have kind of three paths, right? Three, 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 three ways to go. You can try to be one of the guys, all right? Or you can um, make the fact that your gender, make that an issue, right? So everyone knows that you're a female. Or you can walk right down the middle and have it be a non-issue. Let excellence kind of be your calling card. Um, and about, I would say, 200 days through that deployment, um, this, this, this junior officer came up to me and, and said, you know, you know Lieutenant O'Connor, I, I just want to tell you, uh, 
I, I really appreciate you. And I'm like, this is weird. Like, why? Is it because you're one of the only females I know that gender's not an issue. Like, you walk into a room, no one's thinking about the fact that you're a female. They're thinking about the fact that you're a good lawyer who's going to listen and provide sound legal advice. So while that experience was years ago, right, that experience carries through now into the national security law field. Um, now, I said to you, hey, you know, you gotta be, humil you gotta be humble, you have to have humility and, and admit that you might not know everything and admit that um, you don't understand. Um, there is implicit bias, right? I think the government as a whole has done very good uh, at, at eliminating explicit bias, right? Um, but there's still implicit bias. And so if you're a female who's saying, I don't know, that potentially has different ramifications for you than if you're a male saying, oh, I don't know, right? Um, and, and in that sense, I have been very cognizant, especially the last, I would say, three or four years of the implicit bias that um, is there for females. And you just have to kind of navigate it. And I can't tell you how I've navigated it, right? I would say I've been real, I've been authentic and genuine. And if I see something, I will call it out. But I don't, I, I'm not aggressive, in, in, despite the fact that I'm a, an attorney in the military and I just said I'm not aggressive. Uh, I don't like confrontation, right? And I know that about myself. So I will do it with with humor, um, and do it with a way in a way that's educating whoever is uh, showing that implicit bias. So, um, and I'll, I'll caveat one other thing. A lot of my um, advice that I give is to uh, very senior, I'm talking like fifty-year-old, six-year-old uh, white men, and I, I tend to think that those men um, look at me as their daughter as opposed to their legal advisor. Um, and that's okay if they, when I'm advising on legal stuff, listen to me and, and, and treat me as a legal advisor and not as their daughter. All right, um, so that's, that's something that's been a little interesting to kind of navigate and walk through. Um, but it, it hasn't hurt me and it, it's, yeah. That's not me, that's them. I guess that makes sense. So can I tell a quick story? Yeah. My, my, uh, so I started in litigation um, and in antitrust and, and, and high technology, it also was predominantly men for some reason, I don't know. I mean, it, usually there, there's, there's a fair number of uh, female litigators, but um, when I was a second year associate, I was actually, I uh, was, was entrusted by my partners to go ahead and run a fairly large case on my own. And so I flew up to Chicago and I was a little bit late because I had to find parking. I was kind of running around. So I went in and there were literally, it was sort of a, like the Orange County scenario uh, where there was a public, public bond group and they were trading uh, for Cuyahoga County and um, they had sort of churned a lot of the, uh, I, actually I don't even know if any of you remember Orange County, but anyway, they had churned a lot of the, this public tax dollar uh, money in this investment uh, fund. And so there were no less than 14 law firms involved um, and, and we were representing the county of Cuyahoga. So I walked in and I was the only attorney for the county that was, that was there and um, I was late. And at the time, I am a, I'm not an early adopter but I'm a big fan of, <laughs> of technology and I type much faster than I write. And so I actually brought my computer with me. And so I came in, they were already kind of going through, it was actually a deposition and, and they, they already started so I came in, gave my card to the court reporter and I set up my computer and I just started taking notes and I figured, you know, these were all opposing counsel, so it's not like they were going to be upset that I didn't interrupt everything to kind of go through. Um, so we kind of went through the first four hours, and then they took a break, and everybody broke for lunch. 
they all knew each other because they were all from the Chicago area, and they they all dispersed. Some of them went downstairs, some of them went off into a different office, and and I got into the elevator, and it happened that two of the other council also got in the elevator, and so we were coming down, and one of them turns to me and said, "Can I ask you a question?" And it, by the way, I had still no idea who I was because um, I was a little shy. I didn't know I could go and like introduce myself as a mm -hmm. council, and they, I said, "Sure." And he said, why were there two court reporters? <laughs> so there was a learning moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I could, like, you know, mentally jaw drop on the ground. I was like, I was like oh, no, I'm your opposing counsel. And then I introduced myself. So um, I'm not, I'm a little bit more confrontational, if you hadn't gathered. Um, so, so I, you know. I kind of lured it. I will tell you, I had jitters in my stomach because I was a new associate. I had been given a lot of responsibility with this case. Um, I, I think the advice to basically pursue excellence, mm -hmm. keep a sense of humor. There are everybody, every single one of us has some kind of implicit bias. Some are just more obvious than others. Um, be aware of that as well. But in that case, uh, I made it a mission to beat the crap out of them. Um, and so we actually ended up, it took two years, but we got to have a phenomenal settlement. And I will tell you, that, that same attorney, so the two of them basically did have the grace to turn beet red. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, oh, oh, so sorry, right? Um, because because I, you know, I was literally grinning from ear to ear because I just thought it was hilarious. Um, but when the case settled, sort of a win, because you want people to create that civil discourse, right? Both of those attorneys came and said, you were worthy counsel to be on the opposing side, and we would hire you in a heartbeat if you ever decided to come to Chicago. Hmm. So you're not going to win over everybody, but the truth is, is you, m my advice is you can't make gender an issue. You right. can't make fill in the blank an issue because you're going to meet people who are just never going to be a fan. You're going to meet hmm. people who are just going to be entrenched in their biases. Um, you, you're just going to meet people who, in fact, just don't know. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it's incumbent upon you to kind of forge that relationship and you define how you are going to present yourself and not worry so much about the other. I, I, I echo that. Um, the, I came into the military, I was commissioned as an officer two years after the Women's Army Corps was disbanded in the U.S. Army. When I reported into my first legal office, I was the only female attorney in that office. And so throughout my entire career, I was confronted you know, with issues of, of race and gender. Um, but you do, you have to decide early on, how are you going to navigate that? And, and like my um, co-panelists, I decided the best way for me to navigate that was, was through excellence. But you do have to have a sense of humor. And, and to, to, to echo what Liz said, um, I remember my first uh, assignment advising a brigade commander, which is a colonel. And he looked at me and he said, LT, I was a lieutenant at the time, brand new. He says, LT, I have combat boots older than you. And, and without missing a beat, I said, and sir, the day that they can advise you and protect you from opening yourself to personal and you know, corporate liability is the day that that matters. And he looked at me, he's like, LT, you got some spunk, come on with me. You know, but, but you do, you, 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 you have to, you can't get flustered by it. Um, as, as Angie just said, recognize that it's going to be there. I, I, I'm not gonna 
tell you this some perfect world. Um, I am enlightened and happy to see the composition of this audience. Um, Angie and I have been on this path for some a time. time. A long time. <laughs> and, um, and, and she and I can both, both tell you we were, we were in, um, we're, we're on the American Bar Association Standing Committee for Law and National Security, and they have an a annual conference. And um, what, 15, 20 years ago? I could have told you, the, I, we could name probably the 10 females that would have been there every year. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that women are getting into the field. And, and to echo everyone's comments, you, you just have to have, you know, be brave and be courageous. And recognize that just because you push on that door and you get resistance on the other side, that you don't just throw up your hands and walk away. Um, sometimes you, you, you do have to be creative about, okay, that, that, that door is closed, maybe I'll go back around this way and get in that way. Um, but, but you just have to be persistent and pursue what you love. I, I got into operational law. Um, Dr. Lee, my, my professor, my mentor sitting here, so I have to get this right. <laughs> operational law in the military um, doctrinally is defined as the application of international and domestic law to the planning and execution of military operations. And, and I, I backdoored my way into operational law, and I was first exposed to it in my second assignment, which was in Korea. And I'm going to be honest, I was a whole lot younger, and I was not married. And one of the cool things about ops law is that you're around war fighters, and war fighters tend to be young males with hard bodies. And so, quite honestly, I was like, ooh, yeah, the subject matter is interesting, and the people who do it are really interesting. Um, and, and so, or the people I would be advising. Um, but, but, you know, it, it was. It was, it was something, and for me, it, it did combine, in, in hindsight, in, you know, it, it, the strategic end of operational law is national security law. Um, but in hindsight, it did combine two things that I was very interested in. I was a political um, science major, an undergraduate, and so the whole systems of government, um, treaties, the, 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 inter the international relations discourse was something that I was very interested in. Um, and then, ironically, I, I, I had a constitutional law background. I was, I was originally the reason why I wanted to become a lawyer was because of civil rights. So it, it actually did combine that in the national security law space, and you, you have the overlay of these operational issues. I mean, it, it is real, it's dynamic, and in many ways, it's high risk. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's zero defect um, when you're advising. Um, and so you, you put all those together, and it's, it can be a very challenging career, but how do you prepare for it? All of us have said it, in one way or the other. You, the core skills, the core, core lawyering skills that you need to develop. Um, you know, the, the, I, I think Merritt talked about the, the, the researching skills and writing skills, you know, because the way that you practice in this area well is having that base of experience. And so as a law student, one of the best ways of getting the basic experience is not only to take the classes, but to do the internships, to, to, to apply to the externships. I was in DOD Office of General Counsel. We had an extern program. Um, 
um, DHS Office of General Counsel has an extern program. Um, many, mostly other executive branch agencies have an externship. So you will see how we actually practice law in this area. Um, and, and then, as, as Angie mentioned, there is a private sector counterpart or analog to this. Because it, it is the same issue set, it's just what side of the wall as you were, are you standing on? And so I would, I would commend and, to you and strongly recommend that you get involved in those types of things. And I'm looking at, at this book, the um, Standing Committee puts out a, a booklet called Careers in National Security Law, which is um, very dated. Our executive director was like, Tia, that book is like ancient. We gotta update it. And so then my dear friend Angie goes, oh, we could do that. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding me? I don't have time to do that. But, um, but, but I would, you know, I, I have a, you can flip through these and I also have, um, information for the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, come to the, to the annual conference. You'll hear from practitioners, you'll hear from people in government, you'll hear, you'll hear from legislators, you'll hear from private sector, and, and we'll talk about those cross-cutting type of issues. All right, last one. Sorry, I have a couple of quick points. Okay. One is that I think in my experience and talking to friends as a woman in tech and as a woman in national security that military and government are among the most equitable actually in terms of pay, in terms of promotions. There's no way to really know, but certainly you're getting paid based on your rank or other factors. And so I think it can actually be a really good option. Um, I think women tend to have more, and like this has been proven in studies, that they tend to have more imposter syndrome. So I do think that part of it, like it is relevant, I have to give myself pep talks sometimes that like the guy in your comparable position doesn't second guess whether he should apply for the job. But my judge always used to tell me, if you're not getting rejected, you're not trying hard enough. So apply for stuff or, um, in my view, it's sort of a, um, you know, use it in a way that because you do think differently, um, don't assume that it's option A or option B. So you don't see that you know the Bureau of Information Security and Commerce has an externship program. Find someone who you know who works there, whether it's like on the website, or, and write and ask if you can do it. Mm -hmm. You know, assume there's always an option C, and kind of use the fact that you do think differently. Um, and then I would also say. Having a, a what I would call like a champion or a rabbi or whatever you want to call it. I hate the word mentor because it sounds like you're asking for their time, but really it's someone who like believes in your success and you have a two-way street. And these are usually really organic relationships, but you only get them by, mem by networking, um, by like putting yourself out there and having a conversation. People, I, I don't know a single woman who's in a really high job who didn't have a bunch of guys pull her into that position. Mm -hmm. And it is just the way that the world works, and it's also a good skill, and it's a way to insulate yourself so that you don't feel the brunt of it all the time. Um, and then finally, I guess I kind of feel like you have to play the cards you're dealt. Like, you may be the one woman at the table, and it'll make you memorable. So you're you're under a microscope, so just as, you know, everyone Leverage here it. said, yeah, exactly. like, yeah. Be, you know, you want to be good at it, and you want to kind of, you know, be aware of the fact that you may be perceived in a different light or a, a, across a different standard. But you're also, at least you've got their attention, and you'll be memorable, and I think, in final, and this was like, I wrote an op-ed a couple years ago at this 
my own, I have a couple of my own rules, which are don't bake brownies and bring them into the office. Don't use exclamation points in emails. Uh, you know, like don't establish a rapport where you are in the secretarial zone. Don't offer to take notes for people. I mean, make them be the ones to be aware that they are putting you into that position versus, you know, I think I'm not victim blaming at all, but I think that women um, can be um, the type of people to be taught to sort of, um, to take on the brunt of someone else's problem, basically, to fudge the edges because it feels uncomfortable, to say, okay, I'll get the coffee because I don't want to make a scene. It would be okay to say, I, like, I don't need coffee, why don't you grab it? Mm -hmm. So just, uh, I mean, without being overtly confrontational, I think it's good to have a strategy to know um, what behaviors kind of traditionally fall into junior versus senior dynamics and then be observant to you know ranks but not because of gender. Other question? Okay, I have one for the group uh, going back to uh, cyber. And that is, uh, this is really the overview uh, issue. Given the seriousness of the cyber problem, in so many different dimensions. Um, we have the uh, private hackers for fun. We have the private hackers for profit and destruction. We have the governmental uh, hackers for intel. Mm -hmm. We have the governmental hackers putting together uh, potential actual kinetic attacks on us <coughs> through cyber. We have the governmental actors uh, that we're seeing uh, recently actually possibly seeking to influence our political process, where do we stand in relation to dealing with cyber across the board? Is, it, is the problem getting much, much worse? Or are we in our responses to it beginning to catch up with the level of threat? Uh, or is it simply kind of a, an even uh, journey going forward, um, a constant battle about even between the offense and the defense in it. Where are we? Whoa. Okay. The, um, thank you. I was supposed to be testifying before House Oversight and Government Reform this morning. <laughs> and one of the things you learn as a witness, you, no matter what the question is, is thank you, Congressman, for that question. <laughs> um, the, uh, again, I'm the framework person, so I think I'll try to set the frame um, of, of, of what the structure is in the federal government, how the, how the responsibilities are divided a little bit, and then let um, Liz and, and Merritt kind of talk about how, how we do that. Um, but you, what you just laid out was the compendium or the continuum of the, of the threats in the cyber arena. And the, um, the president certainly recognizes that. The, and so one of the things that he most recently did um, in July was to, to issue a new um, presidential directive, PPD number 41, um, which is the Presidential Policy Directive on the United States Cyber Incident Coordination. And so you, you heard Merritt say earlier, and the secretary uses that term, the, he, he draws the distinction between the policeman and the firefighter, and that in this space, FBI is the policeman. They, they, are, they are going to um, respond when there has been an incident. They are going to do a, a criminal investigation. They are going to do certain types of forensics.
but it's primarily driving at the source of whatever the, the incident was. We have the intelligence community that's also in this space. And they're going to be intelligence gathering. Um, they are the ones responsible for attribution. You know, they're going to trace back to, to, to where it came from. DHS views itself as the firefighter because we have both, just like a, a good fireman or a good fire department is going to be out there in the beginning, you know, being involved in the design phase, telling you what you need to put in place, what infrastructure you need, what, what protections you need to have in place, and then unfortunately we'll respond when there is the fire and we'll come out and try to put the fire out. And, and we'll also do forensics to, to figure out what was the source of that, but that's because we, for remedial or mitigation measures, not for necessarily attribution, either criminal or within the IC space. So that's what PPD 41 does. It kind of draws the lines or the roads in the sand and, and who is supposed to operate within which lane, recognizing that there's overlap between and among the, the, the two. And so, um, just as an example of, of, of how the overlap occurs, um, I started in Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is one of the components within DHS. Um, ICE is, and again, as I told you, the, the department was made from the Chinese menu. And so, you know, so we have the, the ICE was one of those entities that actually we took two pieces of two things and glommed them together. We took the customs folks who had been in Treasury and, we, and they're the inspectors and the investigators. And we took what had been the immigration officers in the OINS and we put them together. And so the criminal side of that, when you talk about criminal investigations in cyber, and I used to always ask like, the criminal investigators that, like, what, 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 what do we do versus what the FBI does? And, and what they would always tell me is that um, our Homeland Security investigators, which is the criminal side of ICE, is responsible for cyber-enabled crime. So if you use the internet um, in furtherance of your criminal enterprise, th that, would, that would come to our criminal investigators. So things like theft of IP, it was our HSI, they call Homeland Security Investigations, it was our HSI folks who worked with Sony because that was cyber enabled. They were stealing intellectual property, which goes back to the customs piece that we used to have. Whereas, whereas as we know, FBI, if, if, you're, if the crime itself is the actual cyber intrusion, then that's usually going to fall to FBI. Secret Service got a piece too, and they also ours. But that's kind of the lines in the sand of how, how who does what to whom. Then I'm going to hand it off to um, Liz and Merritt, and they can talk about how. You want to do it on the dot mail? Uh, yeah, why don't you go? <laughs> I mean, I'm glad to go. I, I feel like there is, so mine is just quick, which is yeah. I feel like the sky is not falling. Like we know there are certain actors and they have certain agendas and they have certain capabilities. And so if you connect the dots, like it is not one of those worlds where it's like, who knows? Mm -hmm. The grid could go, the internet kills it. Like that's not a thing. You know, this is not a world of constant or shouldn't be a world of constant fear, but it's certainly a world in which we know that there are players that have some capabilities, that um, have some resources, that have some agenda. And so you trace those fault lines. So we've got like a nation state list of like actors that we know to be uh, looking at certain agenda items. And so we know where to, 
It doesn't mean that we can prevent every attack, but it does mean that like we're not living in some like random world of just bombs falling no matter what. Yeah, cyberbombs. Right. Cyber like this whole thing of like, and even some nations. Some nations are just interested in stealing our intellectual property. Right. Some want like cash from ATMs. I mean, we literally see the same sort of patterns, and also, it's the same bottom line kind of negotiation that we think about with companies. We're like, what do they want? What do they want? So if you think about you know hacktivists versus um, thieves versus nation state level, they're after different stuff and they have different levels of capability and we have to worry about them chasing down the channels that we know they're gonna want. And so I, I think that it doesn't mean that you don't worry, but it does mean that you assign certain levels of um, risk uh, management and certain approaches technically to certain uh, vulnerabilities or like areas of, of concern. Um, so that's the first, and then I would uh, reiterate what Tia said where we do have some, like it's a common refrain that uh, you know, political commenters will say something like, who knows who owns cyber? It's like, no, although on the Hill it's owned by a lot of different committees, in general we know like the FBI wants to catch the bad guys, so they're concerned with evidence that holds up in court. Mm -hmm. um, the dark world has always existed and it continues to, and now that we have the internet, it involves the internet. Um, you know, and what, what I see is really kind of new on this landscape is actually some interesting questions about the role of government in uh, civilian, including open source stuff. Um, so, like, you know, is Sony critical infrastructure? Determinations that really involve private sector and government in intimate ways that we haven't seen before are really constant and growing questions. And I think there is absolutely um, room to continue to mold this area of law and policy, and it's one of the reasons that I love it. I thought you said it was going to be short. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, you know, I often think, I, I joke around and say that these are kind of man-made problems, right? Because if we had carrier pigeons, we wouldn't have these issues. Because um, we wouldn't have anything to protect in the cyber world. Um, but uh, I read a book, I, I had surgery back in March, and um, I, was, I was out of work for a while, and I read a book called, um, and, and I think Merritt had it right, when it says, it was called Shadow Wars, and it's about the history of um, U.S. Cyber Command and uh, the National Security Agency. And what really struck me at that point was, um, in, in the book, it mentions that in 1987, uh, the question was asked, what if there's a cyber attack? Mm -hmm. Who's in charge? And uh, interestingly, I had read a Washington Post attack, or Washington Post article, sorry, not an attack, Washington Post article in March of this, this past year that said, the US government doesn't know who's in charge if there's a cyber attack. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, it's almost 30 years and we're still asking the same question. Um, but, you know, to what uh, Tia's talking about, you know, th there are plans in, in place, and I, I'm not fearful. Um, I, I think we've, we've carved out lanes um, as to who, um, who's responsible for, for what. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm more with you, Merritt. I, you know, the world's a scary place, but it's always been a scary place. It's just the actors have changed a little bit. From the private sector perspective, I, mean, I would agree. I mean, the, there is a battle going on. Um, there is a persistent and sustained attack. Yeah. But having said that, the truth is, is I don't think we're either losing or winning. I think the fact of the matter is, is we have to be in for the long haul. Mm -hmm. I think so long as we are talking about these types of things, so long as we are reaching out to the next generation of leadership, so long as we essentially are putting a lot of smart people um, both by force and by will and by desire to try and solve the issue, 
uh, if you just take a quick link and take a look at today's government and private sector and how many partnerships are essentially established and up and running, how many mechanisms and people and staff and resources within the government side and the private sector are basically being placed uh, to essentially address, define and address the problem. Um, I, I think, frankly, at the end of the day, it's not the sort of thing where we will ever win, but I do think it is the sort of thing that we will never lose. And I think that's the more important piece of it. This has been absolutely terrific. I hope you will join me in thanking the panelists, not only for a wonderful discussion, but for their uh, great service to the country in this as well. Thank you very much.